Psalms chapter 1, verse 1. It is uh, his, that is Solomon's, greatest hit. You will remember when we studied Solomon, his life and so on, we made the observation, reading from two kings, that Solomon wrote uh, a shed load of proverbs and songs and so on. Well, this is the song of all the songs, the, the best song. And uh, maybe that's because for Solomon it was one of the most personal. This uh, story will tell, these, these poems of love will tell the story of his courtship, his wedding and then his marriage to a young peasant country girl with whom he had fallen in love. You may remember that Solomon's story started well and then towards the end of his life he got himself into a, a right pickle. This part of Solomon's life comes from the beginning, the early days. He's a man of wisdom and godliness. And uh, we pick up the story in that context. So it's a a series of love poems uh, that will trace the journey, not as chronologically as we might if we were writing a, a story, but using the pictures and the images to tell of this young couple that fall in love, their desire for each other, their commitment to wait before they express that desire, the celebration of their marriage, then the beauty of their sexual union. There's a whole chapter on the wedding night. Then their honesty about their troubles and their perseverance, resulting in greater intimacy, celebrated and expressed even more fully in their sexual union towards the end of the book. It's unbelievably rich in imagery and language, And uh, just like God's word spans the ages, 3,000 years ago, these poems of love speak right into the heart of our world that has almost completely lost its bearings when it comes to love, sex, and marriage, and so on. What did it get? I don't know, Bob. Uh, you keep them coming, though. It could be a long morning for both of us this morning. Uh, we've all got to lighten up. Uh, uh, if you're feeling a little nervous, imagine what it feels like standing here. Okay, it's not just for those. It's not just for those who are married. Uh, most of us statistically will go on to be married. It's about those who think they will be married one day, those who have been married and for a whole variety of reasons now aren't, and for those supporting marriages. So let's dive in to what is the most thumbed part of the youth Bible. I've I've got uh, just ten points uh, that we'll go through rapidly because I want to give you an, an overview to look at the landscape, the, the high places of the book, and uh, you can see where it comes from and where it's going. Okay, so it's a celebration of love then between a man and a woman, the king and this peasant girl, uh, and it, it moves to a, uh, a high point, a crescendo, when they get married, which is right in the middle of the book. So whilst it's not in chronological order, and whilst it jumps around a bit in the ideas, if you were to read a book, the ideas might go A, B, C, D, moving towards a conclusion. This book goes A, B, C, C being the key point in the middle, B, A. So it moves in towards uh, the middle, although chronologically it does offer towards the end some later uh, material. And because it's a set of poems and written in that kind of way, there are several refrains or choruses that repeat themselves through the book that emphasize some of the key messages. So, you know, you sing a song and you go... 
then everybody sings the chorus. It's a bit like that. Every now and again, there's one of these choruses or refrains that just draws us in, reminds us what it's all about. Okay, the woman speaks first. Any surprises there? The woman speaks most. Just teaching the Bible. Okay, here we go. Songs of songs, number one, verse two. True love is passionate. True love is passionate. Let me kiss him with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is more beautiful than wine. True love is passionate. Married couples, how close are you? Married couples, how often do you kiss? These uh, poems uh, are full of physical affection that, as we'll see as we journey through, expresses something going on between them that is much deeper than that. Chapter 7, so beginning and the end, remember it's moving into the middle, so chapter 7, verse 10. I belong to my lover and his desire is for me. Come, my lover, let us go to the countryside. Let us spend the night in the villages. Let us go early to the vineyards to see if the vines have budded, if their blossoms have opened, and if the pomegranates, an ancient aphrodisiac, are in bloom. There I will give you my love. So there's this this heat of desire that's very real, that's very physical, that isn't hidden away. It's celebrated, in fact. It's given by God. It's there for us to see. But right from the beginning, the Book of Songs creates a tension for this young couple that are falling in love with all of these desires that are yet to be fulfilled. And one of those refrains that I talked about, we see at verse 2, sorry, verse 6 of chapter 2, His left arm is under my head and his right arm embraces me. That will be repeated again a little later, verse 3 of chapter 8. And for the woman, this is kind of the fulfillment of her desire physically expressed. In the context of feeling safe and secure and loved and honoured by her husband, she says, my desire is that his left hand is under my head and his right hand is, well, the NIV says, embracing me. The message is a, is a little more daring in its, its translation in terms of trying to uh, capture what's really going on. His hand encircles my waist, and I'm not going any further than that. If you don't know what I'm talking about, then you are someone afterwards, okay, on the way home. So there we are. There, and that for the woman, uh, and it's repeated later on at this key moment in the book, it is, this for me is a physical moment that expresses the depth of inter- intimacy and safety and security that I have in this uh, relationship. In fact, a few verses earlier in verse uh, 4 of that same chapter 2, he's taken me to the banqueting hall and his banner over me is love. Picture of a war banner that celebrates who they are, what army they're part of. So she says his love for me is so evident that everyone can see this banner over me, that I belong to him, he loves me and I feel safe with him and secure with him and so on. But because the Hebraic language is is very uh, uh, clever and got lots of nuances, there is a deeper nuance here. Uh, he takes me to his banqueting hall and his intentions with me are love making. So there's this weaving between the, the strength of their relationship that then finds itself physically expressed and we'll say more about that in just a moment. So you get this intensity of passion that's between this young couple that are, uh, that are falling in love and longing for its fulfilment and before the book is out we'll celebrate that fulfilment as we read on. But for a time, that love has to wait. True love 
is patient. True love waits. Let me just define true love for a minute, just to, uh, to make sure we're all on the same page. True love here, in my definition this morning, is, is a man and a woman that are falling in love uh, and, and spending their, their life together, committing themselves through marriage and spending their days together. There are many other kinds of love in our world that are true and honorable and good, uh, but I'm talking very specifically about this man and this woman and therefore that kind of love, that kind of relationship. Turn to the end of the book with me, will you, to uh, chapter 8 and uh, verse 8. And David very helpfully pointed out to us that the story has three voices, the man, the woman, and the friends. So the context is this, there's a young couple, they've fallen in love, and they've got all these desires for each other, as a young couple in love have, and what do they do with those desires? Well, the friends come, verse 8 Oh, Song of Songs 8. We have a young sister, and her breasts are not yet grown. What shall we do for our sister for the day she is spoken for? So we have a friend, might be one of their sisters. We have someone we know who is about to go through puberty towards adulthood. How do we, how do we advise her? How do we love her? How do we support her as she matures into a sexual woman? preparing for the day of which she is spoken for, her wedding day, her marriage day. How do we get one of our friends, one of our sisters, ready for her wedding? Well, they go on to say in verse 9, there are two types of girls. She can be a wall, or she can be a door. If she is a wall, we'll build towers of silver on her. If she is a door, we'll enclose her with panels of cedar. So she could be a wall. She could be closed, private about her sexuality. If you go to a house and there's a big wall in front of the house, it says something about the intention of the person within the house. The wall makes a statement. She's guarding her purity or safeguarding her virginity, to use a word that's barely spoken of in today's culture. She lives a life as a wall. She's saying no, 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 no in what is a very sexually predatory world. Or is she a door? I'm open, I'm available, I'm interested, my top is low, my skirt is short. What? I'm here, I'm open. Now there isn't a parent in this room who doesn't have a strong feeling about which of those they want their daughters to be. Is there? And there isn't a parent in this room that has similar intentions for their sons either. These friends are with you. If a wall, they say, if she's a wall, well, we're going to help her build a strong wall. If if she's a wall, then we're going to put towers of silver on it and we're going to celebrate that she's a wall. Go on, you you stand by your principles. We're going to strengthen your arm to be this wall. If she's a door... We're going to go down to B&Q and we're going to get panels of 4 by 4 and we're going to board her up, essentially is what it says. That's what we're going to do for her. Because we want her to be ready, what for? For the day for which she is spoken for. And then the young woman, the lover in the story, the bride, speaks. She says, you know, I am a war. I am a war. And my breasts are like towers. In other words, I'm I'm a wall, but I've gone through puberty. Look, I'm all fixed up and I'm ready to go. I've got all these passions, all these desires, but I said I'd be a wall. I'm a wall. 
And then she, all of this is reflecting back, you see. She says, because I was a war, thus I have become in his eyes like one bringing contentment. Because I said no, and I said no, and I said no, there came a beautiful day when I could say, yes, I'm yours. Yes, I'm yours. I'm a war, and it's worth the weight. And that essentially is what she's saying to those friends as she looks back. She's saying, you, you, you've got a sister, you've got a friend, you can be a wall or a door. I, I was a war. And it was one of the best things that I did to be a war, to get ready for my marriage in that way. Using a different metaphor, then it goes on in verse 11, talking about vineyards. And you see, Solomon had a, a, a great big vineyard that he'd rent out to tenants, and it was a very fruitful vineyard, and it earned lots of money, it was worth a lot. And she said, Solomon's vineyard is kind of open, and people can come, and they can benefit from it, they can come into this garden that's rich. My garden is rich, but, verse 12, my own vineyard is mine to give. I'm not offering this to anybody. I'm not open. I'm not, I'm not looking for anyone who walks down. It's mine to give. And I'm going to give it thoughtfully and carefully and honorably and God-honoringly. And you know, you think Solomon's vineyards are worth a lot. Well, compared to their vineyards, the thousand shekels, they're for you. It's thousands compared to hundreds. Me keeping myself in that way. So you've got this huge tension in the book about this passionate love relationship between the two. And it's not that they're not interested, it's not that they're not full of desire, but they make this decision to wait. Jump back with me just a few chapters to chapter 4. Remember the book's moving inwards towards their marriage. Chapter 4. It's uh, the wedding night. Solomon. Uh, the man obviously expresses the same thing as the lady's been expressing at the end of the book. He says, I'm so delighted, this is my paraphrase, I'm so delighted that we have waited. And what ensues is a whole chapter devoted to their wedding night. She undresses in front of him and she celebrates who she is. She compliment, he compliments all the various aspects of her body and all the, the, the purity that they point to. And then verse 12 of chapter 4. You're a garden, he says, locked up, my sister, my bride. You're a spring enclosed, a sealed fountain. Your plants are an orchard of pomegranates with choice fruits, and it goes on. It's a fantastic garden that's very fruitful is the image, but it's been until now locked up. The metaphor is very obvious. It's very strong. Uh, and he takes delight. He says, I, I'm delighted that we're in this moment. And until this moment, that which should be locked up has remained locked up. And then the invitation uh, comes. Awake, north wind, and come, south wind, blow on my garden that its fragrance may spread abroad. Let my lover come into his garden and taste its choice fruits. The issue is the timing. Remember where we are in the story. Chapter 3, they get married. Chapter 4 is their wedding night. Beginning of chapter 5, verse 1, is the consummation of their marriage. Finding its fulfillment in its rightful place. 
And so we read verse 1, I've come into my garden, my sister, my bride, I've gathered my myrrh with my spice, I've eaten my honeycomb and my honey, I've drunk my wine and my milk. It's a beautiful moment. It's a beautiful moment when these two people that have held themselves back can give themselves freely and openly. And the friends all celebrate the end of verse 1 of chapter 5. Friends, eat, oh friends, and drink. Drink your fill, oh lovers. Everyone celebrates. Because here are these two people that we knew and loved and they kept themselves pure and honorable so they give themselves wholeheartedly to each other. And it's like the whole community is able to rejoice with them and for them. It's a great wedding day. True love then is uh, physical. Sex is a, is a glorious gift. It's God's gift. Let's understand that he gave it to us very uh, freely. A book here right in the middle of the Bible that celebrates the enjoyment of it and the expression of it is a gift from God under God's governance. The church has been really confusing sometimes in its teachings, hasn't it? We sometimes give the impression that kind of sex is kind of dirty and unnecessary evil, so why don't you save it for the person you love most? It's time for us to celebrate things that are good from God. And because they're good from God, to make sure that we harness their goodness in the way that we should. All kinds of research suggests that sex is much better and much more healthy amongst those who have chosen to wait. It's not a religious survey. General surveys will come to the same conclusion. And, and I guess there are all kinds of reasons why that's so understandable. There are no ugly comparisons. To look the person that you love in the eye and say, yes, that's the best I've ever known, is something to give the person you love the most. No associations of shame and guilt and awkwardness and embarrassment because it's attached in the memories to other places and other things and other people that were wrong and inappropriate. i just got to say again, and you've heard me say this before, as a pastor of a church like this, I speak to people, uh, uh, not every day, but it's not unusual to speak to people who say, we're really struggling to be intimate. And one of the reasons that they're struggling is that before their marriage, before their relationship was ready, they were inappropriately sexually active. And it causes them all kinds of shame and guilt that years later they're trying to shake off. Hey, can God heal? Absolutely. Does God restore and forgive to the utmost? But it can sometimes be a hard journey that we don't need to make. And so, a lovely bit of advice. Uh, verse 7, chapter 2. And this is one of those refrains chorus, high points in the story that remind us what it's all about. Daughters of Jerusalem, that's back to those friends again. I charge you, this is important, this is what I'm trying to teach you. So part of the book is like this relationship being played out so it can teach these, these friends. Do not arouse or awaken love until it so desires. It's repeated again in chapter 3, verse 5, and repeated again in chapter 8, verse 3. This is very good advice. One of the most common questions that courting couples that love Jesus with all their hearts and they really want to save themselves until they're married will ask, they'll ask me, how far can I go? How far, how near to the fire can I go without being burned? These verses are very practical very helpful from the heart of God's word, and I think we need to hear them. It's a strange question, isn't it? 
And so they're saying, well, how, how close to the edge can I go before it's too much? Is prolonged kissing okay? Is petting okay? Can I touch parts of the other person that I don't have? Is that okay? And these verses show how unkind that is. Do not awaken desire until it's proper time. If we are saving ourselves for the other, anything that awakens desire early is unhelpful. If he touches her breasts, and if she touches his thighs, will he feel satisfied, will she feel satisfied, or just thirsty for more? How unkind can we be when we tempt one another, when we lead one another on, when we take each other to the edge and then feel, feel surprised that one of us falls over? So here in the heart of this book that's very passionate, it's very erotic, it celebrates sex and everything that's good, it says, hey, this is, this is like playing with fire. Don't awaken something that will be out of control before you know it. Be kind to one another. Make sure you've taught your kids about that, won't you? Am I anyone here? I'm not the only one in the room now. I'm getting a little awkward, a little embarrassed. Are you okay? Are you with me? Yeah? It's important, isn't it? You know, before the, the fire's burning and we're trying to find fire extinguishers to put it all out because they never should have been lit. The question is not where do you draw the line, but when is the time? Now, you could be forgiven for thinking that this whole book is physical and about physical desires and, and, and so on, and, and in many senses it is. But the reason they're able to delight in each other so fully and so wonderfully is because of the other factors in this relationship that Song of Songs points us to. You see, true love is not about appearance. True love is not appearance-centered, but true love is person-centered. We're right back at the beginning of the book again. Chapter uh, 1 and verse 2. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is more delightful than wine. Pleasing is the fragrance of your perfume. You think, hmm, I wonder what that is. Is that Calvin Klein? What, what's that? No, your name is like the perfume poured out. Your character, the person that you are, is the aroma that I am talking about that's deeper and more profound than anything from Calvin Klein. Your character is what I'm so attracted to says the lady in the first few verses of this book, Song of Songs. As husbands, we might want to go straight to verse 4 and go, how do we race with our wives to the chamber room, to the bedroom? And here God says, well, work on your character then. It's not the answer you wanted, but it's just teaching the Bible. Here at the very beginning of what becomes very physical and passionate and alive begins because she recognized in this man a godliness that drew her to him. Uh, Cuts in both ways. Verse 6, the woman now says to the man, Do not stare at me because I am dark, because I am darkened by the sun. Now, the tan look, apparently, 
is in, is it? I don't know. People go on sunbeds and do all that kind of stuff because that's the way we should look. Well, in those days, what you really wanted in your woman was to have a nice, pale skin. So, if your wife has got nice, pale skin, you're in. Boy, that's what it's all about. Because they didn't have to go and work outside. They weren't that poor. They could shelter from the midday sun, therefore keep themselves looking beautiful. She says... Please do not stare at me because I am not up to the beauty that the culture of my day is setting for us. Don't stare at me because my skin's dark. I know if I'm to look beautiful, I should have pale skin, but I haven't got that. I do not look like the girls in the magazines. There is not a woman in this room this morning who will not immediately know a part of their body where they have been made to feel they do not measure up. Maybe several parts. And instantly, as I say it, because it's very real, we've created this culture that that is what is beautiful and none of us probably in this room match up to that. And she says, you know, I'm self-conscious. I don't look like I should. The man's response is beautiful and twofold. He says in, uh, in verse 9, in response, he speaks to her about her beauty. And he says, I liken you, my darling, to a mare harnessed to one of the chariots of Pharaoh. You have to understand there's quite a lot of cultural distance now between us and the book. She says, I'm really struggling with the way I look. He says, don't worry, you look like a horse. It's fantastic. Men, do not try that when you get home, okay? However she looks, don't use the word horse. I promise you, it will not go well. Uh, but for Solomon, remember Solomon, he loved his horses. He had thousands of horses and chariots. Uh, and, and for him, he is saying in his culture, when the mare is all harnessed, dressed up, beautiful, ready to go, in the chariots of Pharaoh that celebrates the splendor of the kingdom and so on. So when I look at you, I see that beauty and that splendor. I delight in you. And so he seemed to get away with it anyway. <clears throat> It's hard though, isn't it, when you don't match up to the way you should look? Isn't it? Do you know we're all beautiful, aren't we? Really? Honestly? I mean, who are the people that says beauty should look like that, whatever that is? And was there a committee that decided it? And could we have a word with them? Would that be okay? Because if there's an in look, you guys are out. I mean, honest, you know, Sunday, I mean, you guys look dreadful compared to the in-look. But then look again. Aren't we beautiful? Truly? We've been robbed. The father of lies that speaks lies and untruths has robbed us. And he is saying here, look, I, I don't care about that standard of beauty stuff. I'm not interested in what others will say to me. You're beautiful. Men, we're very visual. Be very careful what you look at because it will define a beauty that will entrap you, not free you. He says, I'm not caught in that stuff. You're beautiful to me. And he speaks of her beauty. The second thing, verse 15, is back to what the woman was saying. He's saying it. She said it. Now he says, how beautiful you are, my darling. Oh, how beautiful your eyes are doves. I see in your eyes a purity, a faithfulness, an integrity, a respect. What's he talking about? Her character. Just like she said. 
I see you're a man of character. So uh, uh, now uh, he says back to her, what I'm drawn to more than anything, what makes you so beautiful to me is that I can see the love and the purity and the faithfulness that you've cultivated in your inner life. Women, if you want to catch the eye of the right man for you, work on those things. Men, if you want to catch the heart of the right woman, work on those things. Let the perfume be what's in our hearts. And whatever else unfolds through the rest of this book, that's the foundation that's being laid for us. It's about a beauty that's so much deeper. And it's really important, isn't it, that our love is deeper than the way we look, that our love for one another is not locked into our appearance. You see, if Carrie's love for me is locked into the way I look, I'm stuffed. Because it's going downhill. Honestly. Six-pack, an industrial multi-pack is on its way. Grey hair, more grey hair. Wrinkles, more wrinkles. I'm on my way to the knacker's yard. Outwardly, what does the Bible say? I am wasting away. Yet, inwardly... Anyone read the Bible? 2 Corinthians 4, you know all that stuff? Outwardly, I'm wasting away. Let inwardly, I'm being, I hope, renewed. I need someone who loves my inside, don't I? To make the long haul. You need someone that loves your inside. Otherwise, you wake up one day and you think, gosh, she, he, ugly, man. What was I thinking? I'll look for another one. How insecure is that? What a terribly temporary, transient way to live. Say, I like that person because they look gorgeous. Well, in a couple of years' time, they'll no longer be on the front of the magazine because they'll look like the back end of a bus, like the rest of us. True or false? So who are you going to put your trust in? What are you going to look for? What are we teaching our children to understand about the person that they need to fall in love with? And One day I might get excited about that. But now I'll keep it in, in good Christian fashion. person-centered. And because it's person-centered, true love is protective. Verse 13, my lover is to me, still in chapter 1, my lover is to me, it's building this foundation, my lover is for me, a sachet of myrrh resting between my breasts. This image comes from a day that's pre-deodorant, pre-running water, didn't put your perfume on to mask the ugly odors of the day. And so a woman would get a little sachet of perfume, of myrrh. She'd put it around to her, her neck. And as she sleeps, the heat of her body would cause the myrrh to warm and give off the fragrance. And what does she say? My lover does that for me. My lover is a sachet of myrrh. He brings out the best in me. My lover enables me to flourish My lover enables me to bring out the sweet perfume that's within me that sometimes can get locked when I'm fearful and and nervous and anxious or wrong. My lover is there to undergird me and support me. Husbands, are you doing that? There isn't a husband in this room that in this moment who loves his wife who doesn't feel a little bit like, I don't do that like I should. And you see, when we do that, when we create this protective environment, it brings delight and freedom. Chapter 2, verse 3, like an apple tree among the trees of the forest is my lover among the young men. I delight to sit in his shade. 
The idea of being in someone's shade is to be within someone's protection. Uh, we say of the Lord, I'll, what Psalm 46 is it? I shelter under the shadow, the refuge of his wing. There was a song earlier on we talked about shadowing under the grace and mercy of God. She says, when I'm under his protection, when I, when I feel that he makes it safe for me to flourish, when he's undergirding me, when I'm emotionally secure, then I'm abandoned to his love. His fruit is sweeter to my taste. And that's another euphemism you can ask someone else to explain when you've left the building. I'm freer than ever when I know I'm protected in this love relationship. And he says the same thing. Uh, A little later on in chapter 2, verse 14, he, he says, my dove in the clefts of the rock, in the hiding place on the mountainside, show me your face, let me hear your voice, for your voice is sweet and your face is lovely. I love seeing you, I love being near you, I love it when we're together, what we're building together in this relationship matters to me more than anything else. So, would you protect me? Would you help me as I protect you? Would you catch for us the foxes? The little foxes that ruin the vineyards. The vineyard has become a, a metaphor for their relationship. Little foxes that ruin the vineyards are vineyards that are in bloom. We've got this great relationship, but there are foxes that can rob and ruin. What are the foxes in your marriage? You see, foxes are sly. They come at night when you're not expecting them. All you see is not the fox sometimes, but the evidence that they have been. They're silent and sneaky and sly. What is it that's sneaking into your relationship that's robbing you of what God has given? Not enough time together? Sharp and careless words? Unresolved disputes, issues, unhealed pains? What are the foxes? And if you say there aren't any, you just haven't seen them. Because we all have them. And he says to her, look, I need your protection too. Help her, help me, help us together to see those things that are, that are coming between us. And so easily a little wall gets, sorry to mix the metaphors, but a little wall gets built between you. It's like a little fox comes in, puts a little brick in. And before you know it, there's this division that you never wanted, you never intended, and you're trying to work yourselves through it. True love provides, verse 14 of chapter 1, my lover is to me a cluster of henna blossoms from the vineyards of En Gedi. En Gedi was a rich oasis, place you went to to rest and relax. It was the center parks of the ancient Middle East. And uh, he says, in our relationship, it's like that oasis for me. It's En Gedi. So what are you doing to be a place of oasis for your spouse? How do you create that in your home, in your family? How are you giving of yourself in order that your spouse can relax and recover and recuperate? Is time together with each other healing and restorative? Because it should be. And if it isn't, you need to address that. It's what God wants for you. The reason this couple was so alive is because all of these building blocks are in place in their relationship. This is not a superficial, physical relationship that doesn't have the depths of which we are speaking. True love promotes to the other. Song of Songs, verse 4, chapter 2. That verse we had, he's taken me to the banqueting hall and his banner over me is love. He says what I, she says, what I love about him is, is that he celebrates me openly, publicly. Everyone knows when we're together that he loves me. That, that he can see, people can see the love that I have for her. And I delight in that. 
In fact, the whole wedding night is an account of the man promoting, speaking warm words of affirmation, affection, adoration, praise to his wife. He is verbally generous. Almost the whole of chapter 7 is a repeat of him speaking tenderly and uh, uh, lovingly and gently to her. And in response, she becomes visually generous towards him. Twice she undresses before him. Second time, the, the, the dance at the end of chapter 6, the dance of Mahanaim, is a dance of two parties that have been separated. We'll talk about why they were separated in a moment. And, and, and they're coming back together. Uh, I mean, uh, Mark Driscoll, some of you spoke to yesterday, heard yesterday, describes this as an ancient striptease. I, I can't find any other reference to that other than him, but it might be so. But whether that be true or not, this is a very personal, very provocative, very sensual dance that she performs as, this two couple, as these two people are reunited. And so the whole of chapter 7 almost is given over to that, except for the bit at the end when it says, all this leading, come on then, let's go to the countryside. Let us spend the night in the villages. Let us get up early and go to the vineyards. And there I will give you my love. Wow. And so we're kind of looking at one another thinking, what on earth are we doing with our lives? And these guys are carrying on like this. But the point is this. Why is their relationship like that? It is like that because all of the things that the early parts of the book uh, set in place were true for them, and they worked at it. It's like that because they were person-centered. It was like that because they were committed to provide for each other, to protect one another. They were patient and they honored one another to the appropriate time. They were looking to build their character because they knew that what each other saw in the, what the one saw in the other and vice versa ultimately was about their character. That was the beauty that made all the physical beauty so purposeful and so meaningful. And so just a few final thoughts as we wrap this thing up. They get married, chapter 3, wedding night, chapter 4, consummation, beginning of chapter 5. Then after a period of time, they have a bust up. They have a bust up. Doesn't matter how true your love is, you will have a bust up. Suddenly everyone's going, hmm, hmm. It's the first thing you've agreed with me all morning. (laughs) There will be a bust-up. There will be a bust-up. And maybe that's why two chapters of this short book cover the bust-up. It's not the bust-up that finishes your relationship, is it? It's how you deal with the bust-up when it comes. And uh, to help us understand that, let's just look at what happens. It's chapter uh, 5, verse 2. It seems that they, they've, been, they've had a row. Can you imagine couples having a row? It's hard to believe. Get your mind around it. Stretch. Faith. Okay, this couple has had a row. He's come home late. Can you imagine that? Imagine him coming home late and the wife being so miffed off, she thought, I'm going to bed already and locking him out. Can you imagine that? It's hard to imagine, isn't it? Way out of our experience. His dinner is probably in the dog. He's home late. He's all sweaty and, and stressed out. And verse 2, I, I slept, but my heart was awake. I went to bed, but inside I was fuming. I was wide awake. My heart was, my heart was not sleeping. We'd had this bust up. We weren't together. I go, oh, listen, now he's coming. My lover is knocking at the door. And he goes rather creepily, open to me, my sister, my darling, my dove, my flawless one. He's really laying it on. My head is drenched. Please feel sorry for me. I'm tired. I'm wet. I need to come in. And she goes, well, I've taken off my robe. 
got a stinking headache. Take, do you expect me to come and answer the door without my robe? That would be nice. He's probably thinking to himself, that would be nice. She says, I, I, I've already washed my feet. Do you really want me to get my feet dirty? You, you, have you ever had an argument when you say ridiculous things? Like a few chap verses, goodness knows, before they're doing all kinds of things, and now she can't even take her robe off. That's what arguments do. Take you to ridiculous places where you should never be. Recognize the argument for what it is. And then, eventually, she goes, oh, go on, then, and gets up, by which time he's stormed off in a huff. So she does open the door. Not sure whether she's got her robe on or not. It doesn't say. But she opens the door, and he's gone. She said, well, I opened my door. I realized what a fool I'd been. I should have let him in. I didn't let him in. I was stubborn. I was prideful. And now he's gone. My lover is gone. How do they respond to the bust-up? So important. Two things that were really important in the response to the bust-up. The first is, they lived out of the value that their true love for each other is permanent. When she eventually catches up with him, I am my lover's and my lover is my... That's the truth. We might have busted up. We might have argued. We might have not seen eye to eye. We might have said cruel, hurtful, demoralizing things to each other. But the buck stops here. I am my lover's and he is mine. That's a safe place, isn't it? Never use the D word. Never make threats. Start with the safe place. We're together in this. We've got to work this out because there is no other option. We've committed ourselves to one another. We can be happily married or unhappily married. That's the deal. Let's stick at what we've got because we've made those promises to one another. And that's where she begins. She said, this is permanent. We've got to sort this out. And because it's permanent, because it needs sorting out, someone has to go and find the other person. In this instance, it was the woman that went to find the man. Probably because the woman was in the wrong, but I'll leave you to think about... No, 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 sorry. (laughs) Sorry, sorry. Uh, That wasn't meant to be funny. It wasn't meant to be flippant. Uh, As you track it through, the bloke was in the wrong. He needs to put it right. This time, the woman might well be in the wrong, and she needs to put it right. So it's very equal. Sorry, I'm not... uh, uh, Just checking. Glad you're listening. Uh, Stick with it. Uh, so it just happens, guys, in this case, the woman was in the wrong. It just happens. Sometimes it's true. So she, anyway, the point is, because it's permanent, what does it do? It requires perseverance. She was looking for him, and she can't find him. And she says to her friends, where is he? And they say, we're, we're going to help you find him. My lover has gone down to his garden. He's in the potting shed. What a wimp. <laughs> He's in the, down the bottom of the garden, sitting in the shed, his thumb in his mouth. In his cave, where else would he be? Gone down to his garden, to the beds of spices, to browse, I bet he has. So there he is, and she finds him. Okay, that's quite funny, but metaphorically, because you are one, because it's permanent, what part of your relationship do you need to go looking for the other in? Some of you need to go to the potting shed, because one of you's in it about something. Or many things. Someone's got to go. Who's going to go? Who's got to go? Two choices. Happy marriage or unhappy one. Who's going to go? Both. Thanks. Linda? It's Linda. Thanks. Yeah, thanks. Both can go. And actually, if you trace this through, there are two examples. One, vice versa. Finally, true love has partners. 
friends, but it didn't begin with P. So we call them partners. What do these partners do? What do these friends do? Your relationship needs friends. Not everyone who's around your relationship is a friend, true? Is a friend to your relationship. Choose your friends as a couple very, very carefully. The friends. We're introduced to them at the end of the book, encouraging their sister to be a ward. You need friends that encourage you to do the right thing. And then at the beginning of the book, when they start to fall in love, her friends delight in her newfound romance. Take me away with you. Let us hurry. Let the king bring me into his chambers. Friends, we rejoice and delight in you. Some of you will have started dating someone and your friends were not happy. That's a big warning light for you, isn't it? Some of you will know in retrospect that your friends were right. They're more objective than you are. If your friends are not happy with your newfound relationship, real friends that believe in you and love you, you listen very carefully, won't you, to your friends? Hello? Really important. Verse 8. The friends are encouraging and they say, if you do not know where he is, most beautiful woman, follow the tracks of the sheep and graze your young goats by the tents of the shepherds. Go and find him. He's up there. We're encouraging you in this relationship. We believe in this man for you. They offered their celebration when they got married. We talked about that earlier on. When there was a bust up, the friends helped her find him. What are your friends like when you're in a bust up? Women and men in groups by themselves can delight in mouthing off about their spouses. You hear it all the time. Sit on a train. You hear it all the time. Get friends around you that will make you do the right thing. When you've had a bust up, you do not need your friend to tell you how lousy your spouse is. You know that yourself, don't you? You do not need friends that will encourage you in your resentment and your bitterness. You do not need friends that will support you in your side of the argument. You will delight to tell them both sides. Your side's like this and their side down there. Who do you think you'll say to your friends is right? Oh, you are. You're right, of course. Anyone know what I'm talking about? Very careful who your friends are. Celebrating your marriage. I haven't got a slide for this, but verse 10 of chapter 6. When they're reunited, the friends celebrate. That's the kind of friends uh, that you want. Friends that will strengthen your marriage. You got friends like that? If you haven't got friends like that in your relationship, find them. Have you got friends that you know your spouse can go and talk to and get good advice so that you don't feel threatened or awkward, but you know they're going to get godly advice? and be sent back to you faster than they can possibly run to sort it out. You need friends like that. Every relationship needs friends. Are you a friend like that? You see, everybody knows the marriage is struggling just now. Everybody in this room. Are you a friend like that to that marriage? That's what God's asking of us this morning. As we weave our way through the story, I leave you with those friends. One final comment from me. Hey, this is, this is hard stuff because it, relationships are hard. They cause us a great deal of pain. We carry all kinds of, uh, of, of, of angst about things that have happened to us that should never have happened to us, experiences that we've been through, wrong decisions that we've made. God's love is big enough for the pickle you might be in.
God's grace is wide enough to reach you wherever you are. God's blood, through Jesus, can cleanse the deepest, darkest place. And it is true that Song of Songs is used as a picture of Christ and the church. It's far too physical and graphic for that to be, in my opinion, the primary reason. Someone says Song of Songs is an allegory. Well, it doesn't make any sense, because I don't relate to Jesus like that. But its overriding theme of a lover and the beloved is of a son who came and loved you, bought you at a great price, came looking for you in the potting shed, to bring you home. 